Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Happy podcast day, Bobo. It's me again. You ready to do this? Sort of. Sort of. Why are you not 100% down right now? I got a little bit of upset tummy. Oh, really? Okay. Old chili. Old chili. I thought that was the old bobes. I thought the new bobes didn't eat old food. I know, dude. I'm not supposed to. When you say not supposed to, is that a doctor's order or is it a girlfriend order or is it just common sense? Doctor. Doctor. Okay. I was going to say. I've never known you to necessarily do much of what your girlfriend says in common sense sometimes. Well, not so common. <laughs> exactly. I remember I thought that as I can, Bobs, what are you doing, man? Because I have seen you eat some old food in my time, you know, like finding Bigfoot days and we'd be somewhere for nine, you know, eight or nine days and there'd be piles of salad and things in a room. And I've seen you eat some things that I probably wouldn't have dared. But it was in, um, in Southeast Asia and Vietnam when you're eating all that street food. Yeah, that that's what really made me go, dude. You gotta, I don't know, man. What are you even eating? I used to train for Mexico. I'd get a family-sized pepperoni pizza. Mm-hmm. I'd leave it on the counter. I I'd eat like two slices a day. And then by the end of like the sixth day, it would be like pretty funky. With my stomach, I'd, my stomach would growl a lot. I'd fart a lot. And like, but then when I got to Mexico, I'd be fine. So it was like training. It, it was like a you know. Like runners do in high altitudes when they have to a race at high elevation. Yep, it worked. You're you're training your stomach, your gut, uh, to be iron so it wouldn't reject the food in Mexico. Exactly. <laughs> now you know when I went to Mexico, I was camping on the beach down south of uh, Loreto somewhere, Rattlesnake Beach, I think was the place. But uh, we would just go to the the fruit stand and buy produce and you know wash it off real well and everything and. Um, that stuff never really got us sick or anything. Did you find in your time in Mexico that it was more dangerous to eat the vegetables or the meats? Vegetables. Really? Okay. Usually. Inter- interesting. Well, because they'd they'd water them with um, like you know they'd water them with the water and the water would have like E. coli in it or whatever. That reminds me of the cabbage patches uh, below the outhouses in Nepal in that small village. Right. Yeah, same same thing. Yeah, the meat. Yeah, you you can get sick from the meat there for sure sometimes, but I I never got that sick too often. Like I mean, I had a few real bad bouts of food poisoning, but for all the time I spent there, I mean, I spent six months there one year. I had a couple bouts that time, but I I was eating gnarly stuff. Like, oh yeah, chili got you tonight. Yeah, that stuff was pretty old. It was sitting in the fridge, but I, I didn't want to waste it. I paid like six bucks for it so i was like i can't waste that so i just ate it 
So yeah, that was pretty cool. We had Prude on. I got some uh, good feedback. <laughs> a few people were like, kind of like, going, man, that guy used some pretty big words. And I was like, dude, he he is very literate. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And 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 I said it a couple times, I think, during the podcast. And I'm not, you know, just blowing smoke or sucking up to anybody, you know. But he is one of the smartest guys in Bigfoot that I can think of. And I, and I want to emphasize smart, though. I, I'm not saying educated, because he himself said he only has a small amount of community college or something like that. Uh, he has, I don't think he has a degree, so education is not totally equal to intelligence. And, um, oh. and I think Matt is a good example of what any one of us can do, um, no matter what educational level or access to education or anything that one has. You can be as smart as you want to be, and Matt is a great example, a shining beacon of that. Yeah. And you said he just turned you on a great new book, right? Yeah. And you know, that's the, that's the secret to keeping on learning your entire life. Ask any elementary school teacher, such as myself, you got to keep on reading. And Matt just devours books, just devours these things. Um, he, he turned me on to this tiger book that, uh, I, I just came in the mail a couple of days ago, so I haven't had a chance to get into yet. But um, he was talking about all the parallels between tigers and Sasquatches. Um, and then this past week, he turned me on to this book. It's only available um, on uh, on Kindle, I guess, or Amazon, called Beyond the Secret Elephants on Mystery Elephants and Discovery by this guy named uh, Gareth Patterson. I've only read about a third of the book so far, but it is outstanding. Just superficially, it seems to be more or less about elephants because that's this guy's expertise at this point in his life. He cut his teeth on um, studying lions and whatnot in the plains of Africa. But now he's studying these forest elephants in uh, South Africa, the furthermost southern uh, population of elephants anywhere, basically, Um, because they're really just like on the very southern tip of South Africa and these forests that are down there. And they thought this this. This troop, or no, not a troop, would be this herd of elephants was uh, pretty much going almost extinct. They thought it was down to one individual, and then he shows up and kind of shows them all. No, 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 they're not. There's way more than one. And he found all these elephants and talked to the local people who pretty much all knew that there were more than one as well. But along the way, as I said, this isn't just about elephants, but along the way, he started picking up stories of these things called Otung. And um, these are basically Sasquatches for all practical purposes. They are hairy humanoid critters in South Africa and in, in this forested foothills. And eventually over the years, he, ha- he ob- has observed them himself. And that is so important for a guy like this, a guy of this caliber, um, this award-winning, highly respected naturalist and ecologist and conservationist um, who has decades of field work study experience under his belt to say, yep, saw one. I talked to lots of the people I believe. They're real. They're here. And I'm going to write a book about it under the pretense of writing about elephants. But really, it's just as much about these things as it is elephants at all. So it's just such an amazing find. And it was published in mid-January 2020. That's like a month ago, a month ago. This book's been out a month. When I started going through it, I said, holy smokes, this is, good. This is an amazing book. So I texted Meldrum. I go, Jeff, check out this book. He mentions you. He's into the idea of relic hominoids, blah, blah, blah. And he, he wrote back, yeah, yeah, Ian Redman told me about it two days ago. I've already started reading it. <laughs> Yeah, so this is the book to read, man. I think 2020. This is that what a fantastic way to start the year, uh, because this is. I think this is going to be a very important work, just as important as uh, Gregory Fourth's work um, about the uh, the images of the Southeast Asian wild man. 
when people of this caliber, of these calibers, um, start writing down what they learn and know and think on, on a piece of paper to share, that is significant because that makes us all smarter as a community. So I hope you get, I hope you read it. I hope all, all everybody listening reads it. It's fantastic. Uh, seriously going to start tonight. Yeah. And you can start whenever you hear this out there in, you know, podcast land too, because again, it's only on Kindle and I don't make any, we, we Bigfoot and beyond, we don't make any money on this whatsoever. I am only suggesting it because, um, so far I'm very impressed with it. And I believe when I'm done reading it, I'm going to look back and say, that is going to be a historically important book in the subject. Um, cause I, I, Bobo, you're, you're also very well read in Bigfoot, um, books, um, in particular, are you aware of any other books that covers the idea of uh, hairy hominoids in Africa? I've seen some stuff on the internet about people, and I've gotten people write, have written to me about seeing things over there and hearing stories, but not much at all. And then I, I knew a girl or a young woman at Humboldt State University when she was getting her master's in um, wildlife. She went to Africa for a couple of years, and she saw two of them. In for- South Africa? No, she was up in Central Africa, like or more like kind of Tanzania. Like I think she was like North Tanzania, and uh, they came into a glade, little clearing, and they were, I think she said four and a half, five foot tall at least, at least four and a half, somewhere between four and a half and five feet. She wasn't that far, she said, but they were uh, bipedal, like some type of upright ape. She said it, you didn't think it was human for like you wouldn't think it was a wild man or something like that. She said uh, she saw a pelt of one in the wildlife market, bush meat market. They were cracking down on bush meat markets over there, like primates because of you know disease and stuff like that. And they they thought she was like some undercover, like you know, like sixty minutes reporter, like trying to expose the they because they, they had some of the meat from one. And she was trying to get it. They wouldn't sell it to her. And then. They hid the hide because they were selling the, the hide for like, you know, like 10 bucks or five bucks or something. So she was trying to buy it. And they wouldn't sell it because they, they thought she was trying to bust them. Well, that's kind of like the way the coelacanth was discovered. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah, was find, like, finding one in a fish market. This was late 90s. Very interesting. Dude, I talked to a guy that worked down on the very bottom south end of Libya. And there's some really dry hills out there, but he had an excellent. A couple settings of one down there at this oil facility, um, and he said huh. like, there was no real forest anywhere nearby. Like it was a uh, a desert squat, like a because there was a lot of canyons and there was a very few um, oases out there or springs. And he he thought like he was man, if, if you were down there trying to track one of those things, you probably wouldn't be that hard just because there was so little water. Well, you know, if there anywhere in the world should have these things, it's going to be Africa. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, Southeast Asia obviously is a high contender as well, you know, but Africa should have them. And, you know, I've heard rumors and stories that I, I haven't spoken to any firsthand witnesses like you have directly, although I'd love to. I've seen a few uh, newspaper odds and ends. In fact, uh, I can probably look it up on my computer right here and take a look at that. I think I have one on my computer. And you know that um, the Relic Hominoid Conference uh, uh, that was scheduled for maybe a year or two ago that got canceled. That was supposed to be in South Africa, if I remember right. So, yeah, there's stuff going on there. Just, you know, but you know how um, in a war the victors write the history and that's the side you hear about? Um, I don't think very many people have written 
about hairy hominoids in Africa. And if they have, it hasn't really escaped to the larger public outside of the continent. So uh, maybe that's uh, the problem. I think you're right. I texted Oscar. You remember our witness, Oscar, who uh, was from South Africa? He saw Sasquatch over here um, outside of Welch's and Rhododendron here at, right up the road from me. Um, we had him on the podcast here. He's from South Africa. So I reached out to him um, just today or yesterday on text and I told him about the book since he seemed interested in the subject. And I thought he might get a kick out of it. And he told me he's going to pick up the book and read it as soon as he can. Oh, right on. And you, you talked yep. to a witness of ours, I remember, because he called me Sam and I had him call you up there. That was a little ordeal. Yeah, yeah. He gave me a call um, and uh, sent along the photographs of the prints in the ground. Yeah, basically, long story short, he uh, he found a footprint on his driveway. He lives in Skamania County in a very, very uh, you know squatchy area, for lack of a better term. He found a footprint on his driveway in the snow and leaf litter one morning. This is what, about a week and a half ago, maybe, or two weeks ago at the most. Um, and he took a couple pictures of it. Um, you can see the pictures on my Facebook page. I threw one of them up there, you know, and then you told me about it and I got in touch with him and found his address and I was working at the museum. So I had to wait until after work, but I was out there. I got out there around seven 30 at night. And by then the, the rain and the snow melts had done some, had really done a number on the footprints, but I was able to observe three of them in the ground. Uh, the original one that was photographed was still there, but you know, uh, it was a little deceiving. The photographs, you know, photographs of footprint tracks are almost always deceiving actually. But, uh, this one, it looked, uh, like it, it might have some depth to it, uh, but if there was any depth to this at all, it was maybe a third of a centimeter at the very most and probably less in some places, you know, um, because it was on pea gravel. It was a pea gravel driveway. And the shape of the foot that you can see in the photograph is largely because the foot had disturbed a thin layer of leaf litter on the driveway. Ahead of it, there was another spot where you could see something damp, like, you know, did some damage to the ground, again, on the pea gravel driveway road thing. If I remember right, it was 42 or 43 inches, um, the step length. And then uh, the, the previous footprint was, was more interesting because the, the, the heel, at least, um, impressed into the substrate that was partly off the road and then the rest of it was on the gravel road. So, um, but it, it was very blobby and whatnot by the time I saw it, but yes, I got to see three of these things and hear stories about the weird sounds and the strange occurrences that have been happening around that property. And, and then of course I'd left them my personal phone number in case anything happens again, because they're always on the lookout. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had those other prints too in the snow that he just, he, he didn't even think about calling us for those ones, but <clears throat> I was glad he thought of us for the last ones, even if it didn't work out. It's, it's, uh, at least we know they're, because usually, whenever I go to these ones, either it's totally indiscernible or usually it's a bear or, or a person. And, uh, at least with him, we knew, we know they were really squash tracks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when you see the photograph too, they're, they're, you know, they, they, they look pretty good. I got excited about them. So, Oh, yeah. yeah. You know what? I'm really getting sick of, you know, how Google, if you have the Google thing, an alert for Bigfoot or Sasquatch on your, and you get the up notices. Oh, yeah. The emails, right? Yeah. It's like telling you like links to articles, like any kind of news article or. Mm -hmm, that mentions it, like has that word in there somewhere. I'm sick of that thing. Man. They're just spreading hoaxes. It's just like a hoax spreading 
Yeah, well, we live in the the world of fake news now, you know. Well, this is um, real fake news. Well, yeah, yeah, but the, it, see, it's slow news days, and then the media runs with the Bigfoot stuff, even if it is a you know big pile of crap. I get so many messages whenever there's a, every fake story, every fake video. I get tons of it's like, and then I heard that uh, YouTube does not recommend any new Bigfoot videos because they're they've all been fake. Where did yeah. you hear that? I was talking to someone that knows the internet stuff real well, and they said, yeah, there's no more. It is, you know, when it pops up in your, like, if you, whatever you watch a while, like, you might want to watch these, you know, suggested videos, and they'll throw up, like, wow. surfing ones, and, and I used to get Bigfoot videos, and I don't get any more, and I mentioned that to someone, they said, oh, yeah, uh, YouTube no longer recommends Bigfoot videos because they're just all fake. Huh. That's bizarre. Now, what if you just search for Bigfoot stuff and wouldn't so, say... It just doesn't suggest it anymore. Weird. We'll show them. <laughs> Bunch of jerks. Yeah, you know what? I talked to the legendary Tom Yammer on the Bob Dylan of Bigfoot rock and roll. Yeah. You know, my old bandmate. Mm-hmm. We were uh, discussing some things, and we started talking about the Ballad of Albert O. Yeah, I, I love that song. I love the story in general. But what did Tom and you have to say about it? Well, we were just talking about... Um, I was saying, like, you know, I, I always thought it'd be one of the most compelling stories. And, like, for a long time, the best insight into Sasquatch culture, family groups, how they operate, because I, I always thought it was uh, real. And John Green thought it was real. But John Freitas, who's one of my original mentors in the Bigfoot field, he, uh, you know, is law enforcement. And he actually teaches dece- uh, how to detect deception from somebody and... He was convinced that Alberto was lying. He said he's, his body language, um, this, you know, he, he was just like, he's absolutely lying. And I, was, I was so bummed to hear that. And I was talking to Yams about that today, and I said, yeah, Yams, you know, like, it's just, it's kind of, I still believe it's true, but I, I can't be so convinced 100% like I was just because John is so insistent. He said, and he told me, he said, yeah, well, John didn't base that on the whole art. He didn't see the whole interview. Like, he saw a one-minute clip. Uh, there, there's actually video of him talking, uh, of him saying the story, talking about yeah. his account. There's film of that, really. I, did, I don't think I've ever seen that. I know there's a recording. No, there's a whole thing's recorded. But I think there's a, I think there's a minute of footage. I thought. I, I've never seen that. Yeah. So there's like a quick clip, but for the audience that doesn't know, Albert Osman was the guy that went out and did some prospecting back in 1924 up in British Columbia in Canada. And he claimed to have been kidnapped by a family, well, by a, a large adult male Sasquatch and brought back to a Sasquatch family in the interior. Yeah, anybody familiar with the John Green books should know about this story already. Of course, and if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're pretty familiar with the John Green books, or at least should be. Hint, hint, go get them and read them. Yeah, but uh, but Albert Osman was basically he was on a vacation at the head of the Toba, Toba Inlet in British Columbia. That's north of Vancouver on the mainland. And um, one night he was picked up and carried a great distance um, by something, and he turned out it was a Sasquatch, uh, who deposited him in this, uh, I guess, box canyon, where a family of four of these things was hanging out. And he was there for six days, if I remember right. Um, yeah. And during that time, he had a lot of close observations of Sasquatches, uh, their anatomy, their behavior. And uh, at the end of it all, he apparently s- slipped one some snuff, um, which made it sick. And he escaped and made his way out to civilization. Um, 
on the surface, you know, when, when I, back when I read this for the first time, I think in the early nineties or something like that, um, or probably was aware of it earlier than that. But when I really started reading Bigfoot stuff to learn instead of just for entertainment, uh, I was thinking that eh, maybe it seemed pretty far fetched. And even today, I got to say that this is one of those cases, um, that I'm willing to say, I don't know. I just don't know if it's true or not. It might be. If it is, it's significant. Um, some, maybe some of it's true and some of it's not. Or maybe none of it is true. Because there are some problems with the story, after all. Mm-hmm. Not just behavioral problems, you know, like like uh, the, the Sasquatches in the story. Um, they, yeah, they had a lot of ape-like behaviors and strange interactions. They had a little language thing um, going on. They're, they would talk to each other. And I don't have any problem with any of that. What I do have a little bit of a problem is, is their sleeping area was reported to have had uh, a, a bed of loosely woven cedar boughs in which had been like interwoven moss and whatnot as a blanket. See, and I think that's problematic to say that these things wave, like, weave blankets. Yeah, what happened with, with Albert Osman was he was prospecting, looking for a, some gold or whatever. And he was hiking. He, he canoe paddled way up into this inlet. To- Toba Inlet. Uh huh. And he was he went he went hiking up into the mountains, and then after a couple nights, he had uh, one come in and ransack his. Well, something came into his camp and ransacked. He's like, "What the hey?" And then he was worried about his boot. He thought was it porcupines because so he was worried about the porcupines eating his leather boots. So he put his boots in his sleeping bag, and his tins of uh, snuff. And some food, some like canned peaches or something like that, whatever. He had some canned food. Then his rifle and a box of shells. And I think it's flint or matches or something. He had something to make fire. And in the middle of the night, he uh, just got picked up and slung like he was like Santa carrying a bag of toys, slung him over his shoulder and started walking. He made some interesting observations, which I've personally heard the way they breathe like that sometimes, where it sounds like they're, they got a cold or they're out of breath. And he, Mentions the thing like sound like a you know it sounded congested kind of and it was carrying up there and it dropped him off in that canyon and then there was a female adult and then two what he interpreted to be teenager juveniles like a male about seven foot and a female about six six and a half foot I think yeah and he he got the impression from the, the gestures and what they were doing was that they wanted him to mate with the female the young female the teenage girl well you know that isn't in the John Green description. And I, I I heard somewhere that that um, was left out, but what what is the source of that? You know, I still don't remember who told me this. I remember someone told me like twenty years ago. It might have been Dmitry Bayanov or someone. Told I, me- I've heard I've heard that as well. But I hang out with you a lot. I might have heard that from you. So I'd like to get. I mean, nothing personal. I'd like to get an independent source. Like, where did that come from? Because I just, I reread the John Green's version not long John Green's version not long ago, and it's not in there. But I also know that John Green, you know, was a man of his time, and he got rather prudish, perhaps in some ways, because he's a journalist. And there's a, some things that you know, Godfaring people just don't put in, you know, in print. Uh-huh. I guess we can put it out to the listeners. Though. If you guys know of the source, the primary source of that, I'd, uh, we'd both love to hear about it. So, yeah, shoot us an email or something. Yeah, we were talking about the snuff. He would, when he was done with the can of snuff, he'd give it to the adult male, the big one, like the eight foot or whatever, and it would lick it and get all the extra little tidbits. And on his last final day, sixth day, he um, and he'd also give him like the uh, the coffee grounds. He liked the coffee grounds. He used coffee grounds. 
and he gave him a whole can of snuff and the he might have given two cans for sure one can and he ate the whole thing and his stomach started he just watched the things eyes get all weird like it was like uh oh just ate a whole can of snuff and then it grabbed the pitcher of hot coffee and tried to drink that to get get some liquid in and it scalded his mouth and it ran off and then he grabbed his rifle and made a run for the there was the canyon had a little gap like just shoulder width gap in between the rocks to get out and he the female he said you know it was shaped real pear shape which you'll see if you ever get a chance to see dennis Foles, not thermal but just you know night scope video that he filmed the female walking away it, it really reminded me of that albert Osman story how they're kind of apple shaped with big wide hips and kind of a duck walk and he said that she started sprinting towards the to block the e- exit and he fired a shot over her head with his 30-30, and she screamed and ran, turned around and ran off, and he ran down the hill, and they never pursued him or came after him. But, yeah, he, he made some great observations about them climbing the cliffs, the young male, how, how dexterous it was up there. It was, like, it was like a monkey in a tree, the way it was going up and down these cliffs. And he also made some uh, notes about the meeting, like the roots of sweet sweet grasses from the uh, water plants and um, – he, I think, and I think a, a Jeff's Relic Hominid Inquiry Group. I'm pretty sure they refer to that. Oh, yeah, basically the the underside of the foot, the plantar surface of the foot, right? Yeah, they refer to it. I know I've seen it referred to in some of those scientific writings as Osman's pad, since he described that. Hmm. Well, you know, that's one of the things about the Albert Osman story that's kind of always makes me wonder about the truthfulness of it, not not doubting it, because I, I kind of doubt it, obviously, because there's things on both sides I find compelling. Like, yeah, this is clearly nonsense or, yeah, he clear, this clearly happened to him. And what the more compelling things about the story are the anatomical details. Uh, he he does. He did comment in um, John Green's version of the, the story, how the underside of the foot um looks like like almost like it was the underside of a dog's foot, you know, like the that that kind of skin underneath. And which is interesting because um about two years ago, I, I read this study in this journal, I forget which one, and it was about the about dog feet. They, I guess one of the mysteries of dogs um was why is it that dogs that run on ice all day, why is it that their feet don't freeze? Um, and it has to do with the unique structure of the pad of their foot and all these capillaries that are constantly shoving blood through and whatever else. And then I immediately thought of the Albert Osman story uh, because if maybe if superficially on the outside of the surface, if they both look similar, maybe Sasquatches have something like that going as well because they also would live in such frigid conditions. You'd have to wonder why their feet don't freeze to some degree. Maybe they, they're equipped with the same sort of adaptation. Yeah, there's a lot, well, any, any mammal would have to have some, something like that on their foot. That lives in the... Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, I know um, when you see like those natives that never wear shoes ever. Yeah, their feet yeah, yeah. thick. Those calluses and pads on the bottom of their feet—they can get like a quarter inch thick, no problem. You know, um, Albert Osman also made some observations about how the big toe, the hallux, was uh, longer than the rest of the toes, and of course that's a individual variation sort of thing uh, because there are good examples from the Sasquatch footprint data set of Morton's foot where the second digit is longer than the, the hallux. But um, in this case, he noticed like it would be like good for mountain climbing and whatnot. But you know, when I was rereading it, something that's, that struck me at this read, because I haven't re- read it in many years now, you know, probably a decade or something. And I didn't know as much about say hands, Sasquatch hands at the t- when I, when I read it last time, but this time he commented about how the fingers 
were shorter and squatter than they seemed like they should be and how the um the the hands themselves are very wide and it, it just resonated so accurately with what we now know about sasquatch hands yeah uh and so those small little details, like if he didn't, if this whole es- this whole escapade didn't happen to him, how does he know about all these details? But yet there are inconsistencies in the story too. Yeah, where how he paddled out and his story doesn't make sense about. But you know, oh, you know what? Duh. At the Hocking Hills Bigfoot conference with B Mills this year, John Kirk gave a great talk. We got to get John Kirk on here, dude. He, oh really, dude? He gave a like hour and a half talk on Albert Austin's and his story, and you know John Kirk's he's a law enforcement guy. He's he's a you know detective type guy, and he is so thorough in his research. I mean, dude, he dug so deep on this Austin story. He's convinced it's real now. He met people by a chance that knew Austin back in the '60s and '70s. I mean. Uh, John went to like San Francisco where Albert had been born, I guess, and lived there for a while. And he went, um, tracked down Austin's widow and, um, all kinds of stuff. And he, he had so much documentation about where Albert was working at the time and everything. He couldn't prove that his story was real, but everything Albert else had said rang true. And he also got to speak to two people at new Austin. He talked to one old timer that knew Albert back at that time that worked with him on the job site and said, yeah, he came and then he left. He was like, uh, he moved back to Washington state and, um, yeah, we, we'll, I'll get John Kirk on here and he'll, he is impressed at how much he researched it. And he met someone else. Like, I think it was a woman that was a waitress that knew him or something that used to come in and he had told her that story before. Um, well, you know, that's one of the things about the Osman story that is problematic is that he didn't tell his like that the whole the whole occurrence happened in 1924, but he didn't tell anybody until 1957. Well, well, he he wrote it down. Luckily, he wrote it down. I don't know when, but decades before 1957. Um, so that exists or existed at least, but he didn't really go public with it until uh, I think it was a centennial uh, British Columbia or Canada, if I remember right. And there was a big celebration in Harrison Hot Springs, or if I remember right. Is that it? This is approximately accurate. Uh, double check me on this one, all you listeners out there. But there was something going on in Harrison Hot Springs, maybe that great Sasquatch hunt that John Green was um, part of publicizing and all that stuff. But that's when he decided to tell the story, when he saw that people were getting attention about the Bigfoot thing. Um so that's always been problematic. But when John Green is writing in his book, uh, Sasquatch Apes Among Us, um, the last sentence in that chapter, here I have it in front of me here, I'm going to read it. In 1969, however, an old friend of mine told me that he had first heard of the Sasquatch in the early 1930s from a trapper at Toba Inlet who said he knew a young Swede who claimed to have been carried off by one. Well, that's Albert Osman. Yeah. Yeah, because Albert Osman was a Swede. And like who else in Toba Inlet has ever claimed that, right? So like the story existed in the early 1930s, according to John Green's source. So that's compelling too. Yeah. Oh, and Renee DeHinden interviewed him. And Renee DeHinden's widow was um, – well, she was afterwards he died. Um, just about seven, eight years ago, she came to a Bigfoot uh, conference. And she was there when Renee interviewed Albert Osman. 
and she was like from his home, the same hometown as Albert Osman or the same little province or whatever. So mm-hmm. they struck, they hit it off real, real well. And she said her and Renee were both absolutely convinced that he was telling the truth. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, the, the other problems though with the story are one of them is geographic. Um, yeah. see uh, mountains and the volcano and all that. Yeah, he's. I think he said Mount Baker, but that's not even. You wouldn't be able to see that there. There's another, but you know, maybe he just has the wrong name of a, you know, a mountain. There's plenty of big old volcano mountains there because it's the Cascades, and yeah. that's how the Cascades were made. But even then, where he said he came out, um, versus where he said he went in, uh, that's like sixty or eighty miles away from each other. Yeah, and he wasn't. You know, when he was carried for. Th- Albert Austin's best guess is that he was carried in his sleeping bag for three hours that night. Yeah. So the distance thing is really problematic um, unless he just has some stuff dead wrong. Right. Oh, you know what else? John Kirk went and pulled all the logging records and found the company that Albert said that he uh, met up with that rescued him. Mm, Yeah. They were logging where Albert said they were. Wow. I, well, I, I certainly have a lot to learn about the new happenings, I guess, in the Albert Osman story. But it uh, sounds like we should probably maybe put a pin in this and try to get John Kirk on in the next few weeks or so. You know what else I forgot to bring up, Cliff, when we were just talking about the Sasquatch-type things in Africa, is that new ghost DNA, kind of human DNA they found in West African populations. They made it with an uh, unknown hominid race 50,000 years ago. Right. Yeah, I, I I heard something about that in the news. What did you What did you read about it? Well, they analyzed the the genomes of like 400 West Africans from like Sierra Sierra Leone and I think Guinea. So I know Sierra Leone was one of them. That that wet where Africa sticks out to the west above Congo, where it comes out. Uh huh. Analyzed it. They had like 400 of them, and they found a they call it ghost DNA, where it's not modern human DNA, and they'd never found this before. And it was unique to um, Africans, and they were mixing, they don't know how far back, but it stopped about 50,000 years ago. And I was wondering if that could be help explain what's going on with these sightings. Well, you know what? I, I think that uh, in Africa, we should expect to have more than one species. If, if you know, I think that we're far enough away from a lot of these things that we won't be able to su- successfully interbreed. So if something was breeding with us 50,000 years ago. We know that Neanderthals did that. We know that um, Denisovans did that same thing, but they're pretty recent, you know, hominins. And so let me ask you this, because I didn't read the article, but I guess I should. Uh, Could they differentiate the ghost DNA from both Neanderthals and Denisovans? I don't know. It says that, I know that so they, they split off from the ancestors of modern humans a little before Neanderthals split off up north. We're going to be seeing a lot more of this in the future because now that we can actually sequence the DNA of extinct hominins like Neanderthals or uh, Denisovans, um, we're going to start seeing little segments of their DNA in our own that proves that we've been interbreeding for some time. Because remember, um, the Denisovans were literally discovered by their DNA. We had a finger bone from a cave in, in Russia somewhere, just a finger bone segment and they tested it was fossilized, but they tested the DNA of that, and they said, "Holy crap, this is a new species." And since then, we've been finding other 
little pieces of bones and fossils or whatever of the same Denisovan. So literally that whole species is best known by their DNA. We have no skeletons from them. We have a jawbone, uh, which is also an interesting story. I don't know if you caught that or not, um, but a Denisovan jawbone was discovered in an unlikely place, at least that's what it would seem to be, in a museum. It had been um, incorrectly uh, identified as something else, maybe Heidelbergensis or, or something like that. But turns out it was Denisovan. So we already had one, but we didn't know. We, we had this mandible of a Denisovan since I think the mid-80s, if my memory serves. Um, and we didn't even know it. Yeah, well, they used to say, oh, this DNA, like it's human DNA. I was like, well, how do you know what we what we call human DNA? How do you know that that isn't, wasn't something else that got mixed in with us so far back? We just call it human now, but it really came, but now they can tell the difference. Yeah, the science is beyond me. That's one of those things I should probably learn more about. Uh, but God, there's just so much else to do besides becoming a pseudo expert on DNA when there's other people that already are. Right. I just try to have an understanding of it on some level. Yeah, I mean, I had my biology classes in college and whatever, but beyond that, it's it's all letters to me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, well, there's it's an exciting time, you know. Um, and when we look at that, the the um, beyond the secret elephants book uh, that we were mentioning earlier, the one of the sightings you mentioned was that they were smaller, right? Uh, that might fit really, really well into the Australopithecine. Um, framework, you know, the, the model, because they were relatively small, like four feet tall for the most part. Maybe they're relict Australopithecines. Um, the uh, Otung, uh, one of the accounts had it, one of the accounts had it at seven feet tall or so. So that doesn't fit very well in the Australopithecines, at least as we know them from the fossil record. But um, if Sasquatches are paranthropists, as I suspect they might be, uh, that just shows that that species could get bigger. And it probably did, you know, maybe that's what we're dealing with. So, or maybe some unknown Australopithecine or Paranthropus that was larger to begin with. That would be an earth shaker, wouldn't it? Oh yeah. I mean, it's totally possible. Totally possible. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, I may, I think, I think I picked this up from Meldrum, but I'm not sure. Gosh, my memory is just so lousy, you know, about details like that. Um, but I believe that the, the number is something like less than scientists currently think they have less than 2% of uh, um, of the fossilized species on record so far. Have you found what you think is Sasquatch scat, Bobo? Yeah, I for sure did. It was right in a track line. It was coming up and raiding the rat traps that had juju fruits in them. And Wait, wh- where and when? Let's start with that. Where and when? And then set it up. This was at Orleans down uh, by the base of right where you turn up to go to, if you, where you go left to go to Bluff Creek up there up the go road. Uh huh. We just went straight for another uh, half mile and hung a right on Red Cap and went across Red Cap Road down Red Cap Creek up up Red the last property on Red Cap Creek. By the way, Red Cap Creek is where the Crook Indians up there, the, the local tribe, they're the neighbors of the Urox and Hoopas that people are more familiar with. They uh, said so that's Red Cap Creek up there is where. Their creation story for for with the hairy man, whatever Sasquatch, is uh, in is in the headwaters of Red Cap Creek, and it's also where Peter Byrne found that nest in his book, where he says it was the best piece of evidence he found in North America. That nest hmm. was, up, was up that same creek, and 
my buddy bought the property. It had been abandoned for 11 years, and there was Bigfoots living on the property, at least part of the time, a family of four. We saw that eyes shine from all four of them one night. Anyways, um, found Scott three different piles there, and it was, you know, the big the big pile was, you know, almost the size of a Coke can. The smaller pile was like the size of a Red Bull can. But the one you could, it was that one I told you about where the, the it, where you could see where it was walking through the tall grass and all that and walked through some dust. But then it walked through a burn pile that had really fine ash in it. There was two perfect, perfect, perfect 14, like three quarter inch tracks, like just looked like the Grace Harbor cast or something, you know? And, but it was real, it was in real fine ash. And it walked over to the, where some rat traps were. And we, theorized that, that it, when it was reaching for the, the candy, it got snapped, the, the trap went off and got him. And then it straddled the, the, the trap and took a huge, huge pile right on top of it. And, and what, what became of that pile, if anything? That's the, some of the ones that I brought to the fishing game office and drop off saying, get this analyzed. I think it's Bigfoot scat. And remember that my buddy got a job there and a couple right. years later I said, Hey, whatever happened, find out what happened to my scat sounds. And he's looking at us, that was you. They told us about some big crazy guy coming with his own piles of huge crap and tell him it's Bigfoot, get it analyzed, and they just threw it in the trash. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. The 2004 expedition in where I had my best setting ever on the Hickory Apache Reservation down there in the Squatch bedding area we found. That's the thing that was weird. They peed where they'd been laying down. They peed and pooped right in their little bedding area. In the middle of it, really? Yeah, those dirt beds where they just cleared, like they cleared everything, like all the sticks, twigs, leaves, whatever that was there, and they'd make these like oval-shaped um, spots in the dirt that were just out in the open, and they they appeared to have slept there. And then when they got up, they peed and pooped right in their sleep spots. We found two different two different days where they'd slept the night before like that, where we found their scat. Weird. You know, I heard that from another investigator in Kentucky uh, that uh, where he thinks that these things were lying down, they would clear out uh, all the leaf litter and twigs and whatnot from the, the, the forest floor to go down to the dirt and then sleep on that. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that yeah. from other people. Wild. Okay, cool. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even think about that until just right now when you're describing that. But it's a summer thing. <laughs> right. When you're just sleeping with the sheet, right? Yeah, exactly. And in their case, they they sheet in it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever found Sasquatch poop. I've uh, taken some pictures of some big turds out in the woods, um, but I can't say any of them are not bare. But, um, you know, trying to diligently document. Somebody has brought poop into the museum now, by the way. It was just a matter of time till that was going to happen. Um, somebody came in with one of those small igloo coolers and opened it up and there's dry ice in there and everything else and a big turd, um, looking close, closely at the turd as closely as I, I, I dare, uh, I've determined that is almost certainly bear crap, but you know, at least they're trying. Was it a German terrorist that brought it in? No, no, it was, um, uh, someone interested in the subject that ran across something weird. So, a, a potential citizen scientist. I don't know of, of their descent, but they weren't German. Hmm. Weren't wearing dolphin shorts and you know all that sort of stuff that Germans may or may not do. Right, right. They do that. 
Well, you know, I only say that because I, I sometimes reflect back to the stay in Yellowstone that I had way back in the day. And um, uh, I was there uh, sleeping at a backpacker's site, you know, in one of those side little places because I just got done backpacking for a few nights out in the in a wilderness area in um, Yellowstone. And so it was the first night back, and I got out of the tent one morning and looked across the meadow, and I saw, something caught my eye in the meadow, and I go, oh, my God. And it was like a shark fin going across, this brown shark fin. I went, no way. And sure enough, a few moments later, I see this big grizzly bear come out of the grass, jump into the, the, the river, swim across the river about 15, 20 feet, hop out on the other side and then keep on going through the meadow with this, you know, his hump right above the grass line. And it was running towards the campground. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And luckily, it was like about 70 or 80 yards away from where I was. Um, that, that, that's where it was aiming towards. And so this thing runs into the campground and, you know, about 70 yards away from me and goes and starts sniffing around all these, um, you know, picnic tables and stuff. And people are honking their horns and yelling at the bear, but several people were in dolphin shorts, clearly Europeans of some sort, um, were trying to get closer to it and take pictures of it. And they were like 15 feet away as this thing's going through the snacks on the, on, you know, morning breakfast tables. Um, I just couldn't believe it. But I guess, you know, when you don't, I guess you don't have grizzly bears there. I mean, they have brown bears and Russians. So you think they'd know better than to approach something like that so closely. Oh, dude, people are stupid. But it's amazing. There's black bears all over. I, I don't know. Like Iran and Iraq have a subspecies of black bear. Hmm. There's like India has them. I mean, up in the Himalayas. I mean, there, there's so many places that have um, brown bears, you know, basically grizzlies around the world. I was surprised to find out how many like turkey and even syria well you know why well, i hear about these relic hominoid reports from places like afghanistan and places like that so i figured there must be huge tracts of uh you know largely vacant forest land if they have you know bigfoot like reports out there so it makes sense that bears would be there too yeah for sure that might be one of those commonalities that we did not notice in um on finding bigfoot as we went abroad and went to places like uh, australia and vietnam and wherever else china um because some of the things I've, i noticed on our travels some of the commonalities is that wherever we went for bigfoot there were or bigfoot like animals there were ferns in every single case there were ferns even in south dakota where it's quite hot and whatnot um i wouldn't think like a a, a plant like that would do well but they were there too and also rhododendrons were a pretty common theme as well. Even in, in like China, I remember the, the prevalence of rhododendrons oh, wow. out into – it looked just like the Pacific Northwest. It did, yeah. No, I think yeah. we thought that ferns were a common denominator for sure. But black bears might be another one that we just didn't run across because black bears are also very elusive. Or brown bears. Oh, bears in general, right? Right. Bears are there. Then certainly other things could be making a living. Right. For sure, yeah. Because people kill bears. <laughs> right. It's gonna be pretty wild for for grizzlies to coexist or brown bears to coexist with people. It's gotta be pretty remote. Cheers. Did you fart? No. What was that? <laughs> you did. I can tell by your voice. Chair squeaking. That's <laughs> that what it is? It's I'm that chilly. Trying to be classy, Cliff. You did it on Finding Bigfoot all the time, and that had more viewers than uh, our show as listeners. Dude, I don't know what happened, but I saw like a five or six minute clip video of just all these clips where they me farting on camera. 
<laughs> there's a couple of good ones where you see Renee's face just contort in a horror and just <laughs> head turn away in disgust. Well, everybody loves a good fart joke, except Renee when she's out there with you. <laughs> they had to have, if they would have told all the times I farted on camera, they'd have, if they just spliced it all together in one continuous sound file, it would be several hours. Oh, it'd be at least one complete episode. Oh, yeah. 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 43 and a half minutes of Bobo fart. Yeah, that's doable. Easily. Yeah, we were eating a lot of weird food. I mean, not weird, but truck stop food and fast food and all that stuff. So definitely had some prominent <laughs> flatulence. There, oh, yeah. Well, there were some questionable meals in there. Like, what about that 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 cold episode when we brought our family members out in um, North oh. Carolina? I think it was. Yeah. Remember, remember the turkey? It had it had air bubbles in it. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, you remember that. Yeah, remember that, right? Because like we 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 started eating it, and we all just were like, "What?" And then um, they said they said, "Screw it!" And they went out to like Burger King or somewhere like that, and got everybody burgers because we had to eat, and we weren't going to eat turkey with air bubbles in it. Right. That was one. It must have just been like mushed up. Like they must have just ground up a bunch of turkeys or something, and then made this mushy goo, and then froze it, in and like made it a solid again somehow, and then sold it as that. But, you know, I got to say, they fed us pretty good. Oh, I'm not complaining. Yeah, for the most part, it was great. Yeah, better than I usually eat some, you know, if I'm cooking. Bobo, do you have anything coming up? Any events? You're going to be doing some appearances or anything like that coming up? You know what? They just announced, I guess, yesterday that I was going to be with you at that event in mid-March up in Oregon. Okay, yeah. But I'm not going to be able to make it because I got to go visit my parents that same weekend. Yep, so I'm gonna have to miss that thing. So you'll be there. What, what's it called again? It's the uh, it's it's on the Mackenzie River. Um, it's a benefit in in Mackenzie Bridge. I don't know where I'm speaking, and I don't know how people would find out about it. But if you look up, you know, Cliff Berkman Mackenzie Bridge, um, and March 13th and 14th, you can learn about it. And it's a benefit, and that's that's why I'm doing it. It's because I believe all the um, proceeds of this go to the school district down there because it's a really small, underfunded school district and. And one of, the, one of the only good things about fame, I guess, is doing good for other people, you know, and um, sometimes so you get an opportunity to help out a small community like this. And Cool. Well, shoot, Cliff. You gotta, well, next time we get together and chat, you got to let me know how it goes. Sounds like we're going to have some great guests in the next couple episodes, too. So I'm looking forward to the next conversation we have. Right on, Cliff. All right. Well, thanks, brother. All right, Bobs, man. Always a pleasure. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. This is the Ballad of Alberto. Well, we've all been out camping. It's a fun place to go. Some go in groups, some go alone. Some go to the mountains. Some
them even camp in the snow. But no one's had a camping trip like old Albert O. Well, he took a vacation to do some prospecting for gold. Rode the boat to Toba Inlet was a good place, he was told. His Indian guide warned him about the Sasquatch. But Albert ignored him, saying, you drank too much scotch. Well, he hiked into the woods. For three days, all was fine. The day four came along, and things began to unwind. His backpack was ransacked. He lost his flower and prunes. He would wait up for this critter by the light of the moon. Waited and waited, but his eyelids, they closed. He was snatched up in his sleeping bag, but still Albert dozed. He woke up in a bundle, couldn't grab for his knife. Albert Osman was in for the ride of his life. Albert, oh, Albert, what did you see? Them Sasquatch make you one of the family. Say, you're not on this Sasquatch. I carry it away. Well, he was carried up and over by three ridges, it seemed. If he wasn't in such pain, he would have thought it was a dream. He got dumped in a heap and he rolled to a stop. When he opened his eyes, well, his jaw had just dropped. Standing before him was a family of four And no, my dear friends, it wasn't the family next door It was four hairy giants and they gave off a smell Albert Osman had been carried to where the Sasquatch did dwell Well, he was trapped in a small valley, made the best of his stay He watched the dad sit around while the kids, they did play they had a bed of moss and leaves, he had his knapsack and boots. He dined on cold hash, and they dined on sweet roots. Very much like a step bigger and covered in hair, where their feet and fingernails didn't rightly compare. Could have sworn they were wild men, they didn't use language or tools. Nah, these were the Sasquatch, they didn't fit any rules. Them Sasquatch made you one of a family. Albert, oh Albert, what do you say? You're not only saw Sasquatch, you got carried away. Well, this went on for six days, and Albert said that's enough. He would make the big one sick by feeding him snuff. Well, he rolled him the can and daddy be ate it all. Albert grabbed up his things and ran for the hole in the wall. Well, he shot at the mama who tried to halt his escape and ran as fast as he could to get free from these apes. And after two days, he found some loggers. They said, what happened to you? Well, he thought about telling them they'd never believe it was true. Albert went home, twas 1924, and kept his tale to himself for 30 years or more. And then he talked to John Green about his week there in hell. He made him swear for the judge, it was the truth he did tell. 
Well, he went looking for some gold to enrich his life. But he almost ended up with a hairy Bigfoot wife. So if you go out camping, don't go where he did go. Or you might just end up like old Albert O. Wow.